You're listening to the Flip My Funnel podcast, a daily podcast dedicated to helping B2B marketing, sales, and customer success professionals become masters of their craft. It's Wednesday, and in these episodes, Sangram and myself, James Carberry, focus on personal development. We'll share books and other resources that are helping us get a little bit better every single day. And remember, like Sangram always says, without a community, you are simply a commodity. Here we go. Sangram here. I got a special announcement for you. I have been part of the Peak community for almost a year now. And here is the thing. Less than 1% of the marketers become CMOs. And you know what's even harder? Staying a CMO without a high caliber peer network that can help you beat the odds. In Peak community, they build a community around you by creating exclusive events and experiences to help you become 1% better each week. So you can get promoted, have an impact, and do the best work of your life. This episode that you're listening to is an example of the conversations that happen literally every single day in the Peak community. So check out, the link is below. If you want to be part of it, it's only for marketers. So make sure you're not a lurker, but someone who want to have an impact and do the best work of your life. Let's go. Hey everyone, it's Tamsin Webster. We're going to give folks a few more minutes to connect, but thanks to all of you who are here on time, but um, I know people are coming from elsewhere. So we're going to get started officially at about 11.03 Eastern time. So just hold tight. Uh, In the meantime, uh, I'd recommend downloading, if you haven't already, the two handouts that we're going to be using today. Uh, You can get both of them at tamsintogo.com. You can see that in the... um, my name and the zoom window. Um, and, uh, it'll also be throughout, but I can also make sure I put it in the chat, but only those of you who see it here right now, will see it. So we'll get Tamsin to go, uh, .com. And actually, um, maybe Alicia, if you could at some point, like grab it with the HTTP in front of it so that it's a live link, that would be helpful too. In the meantime, for those of you here in the chat, would love to know where you're calling in from today and uh, what your role is. So please drop that into the chat so I can see. I can tell you that I'm coming to you from Boston, Massachusetts, where it's a little gray, a little gray and showery today. Um, And looking forward to meeting all of you. So let me know where you're coming in from. Just pop it in the chat. I still feel like the biggest gap in Zoom is the lack of waiting music. while you're on on camera letting people go. Well, hey, Patricia, coming in from Dallas. I went to grad school in Dallas, uh, San Francisco, Columbus, Ohio, and sales. Nice to meet you, Dan. Rockaway. Hey, well, that's you, Alicia. (laughs) Um, Charlotte, excited. All right, Jennifer, coming in from Nashville. Kyle, uh, Kyla, coming in from Portland. I love Portland. My husband's from Callis. That's like super main. Uh, Courtney from Boulder. Uh, exciting. Hope everyone thinks doing a little bit better with the wildfires out there. And we're going to get Woodstock, Frank. Hello. Hello. Uh, we're going to get started in a, one more minute as people come on, come on through. Thanks for letting me know where you're coming in from today. Excellent. All right. So I think as we're getting ready, I am going to shift your viewing experience here while we get started. And again, we're getting ready to go. So this should all be familiar to 
You folks, if for some reason you're not seeing a slide up on your screen that says pressure test your message and a Wall Street Journal-ish looking version of me minus my glasses, then let me know in the chat. Um, thanks, Alicia, for the link to the resources. Appreciate that. Um, and this is what we're going to be talking about today. Uh, again, one more. I'm going to be saying this all the way throughout, Alicia, what she linked to. Both of these links go to the same place. Uh, and what you're going to get when you get uh, there is an opportunity to download two different handouts. One is this pressure test your message handout, uh, which is all the high level notes from what we're going to be talking about today. And then the second one is a specific worksheet that we're going to be talking through a little bit um, depending on time, but that's the thing that's really going to help you do all the tests uh, on your message that we're going to be talking through today. So grab that, have it open up another window, or if you have the opportunity to print it, do. That's uh, you know, it's going to it's going to aid your viewing experience, but not required. Uh, I'm going to talk it all through regardless, but it will be helpful for you to have a pen and paper anybody still uses those, I do, um, or at least a window open where you can take some quick notes about your own message because we're going to be applying everything I'm talking about today to that. So without any further ado, let's talk about why we're here. And that is because in all sorts of environments, and particularly the one that we find ourselves in now, getting our message to survive is the A number one priority. How do you get it to get through all the noise? How do you get it to stand out? Uh, and more importantly, particularly when so many things about what people care about, what your clients and customers and what their clients and customers care about changes all the time, how can you make sure that you have found and built a message that is strong as well? So how can you make sure that it stands out, but how can you make sure that it stands the test of time? After all, this, as the saying goes, it's only the strong that survive. And so today is all about how to pressure test your message, how to put your message through four tests that build on each other, each of which kind of it gets your message kind of that much stronger, exponentially stronger. I don't know. I haven't done the math on whether or not it's a linear or exponential strengthening. Either way, every test that your message can pass, the stronger that it's going to be, not only to differentiate your message, but also to make sure that it stands up to particularly in B2B marketing and sales, all the other people who have to hear it, repeat it, and then act on it. So what are those four tests that we're going to put it through? At a high level, I'm going to run through here. First test that we're going to put your message through is how to make sure that it's relevant to the audience that you're talking about. I'll talk a little bit more about why this one is the first one. A lot of times people are quite surprised that this one is the first one and not one of the later tests, but I'm going to explain and make my case for that. The second test is whether or not it's resilient. So what we're going to be talking about is how to make sure that your message passes both that kind of gut check that people uh, that you're talking to, that your prospective clients and customers are going to be talking to, um, uh, that you're going to be talking to, that gut check that's the immediate response to a message that they read or hear from you, uh, and then the secondary response, which is try to rationalize whatever decision they have made with their gut. The third test that we're going to talk about how to do with your message is how to make it remarkable. So once you've established how to make sure that it's relevant how, and you've made sure that it's resilient, how can you make sure that it stands out from others in the marketplace who are doing something that uh, is similar to you or could be considered similar to you? 
a lot of clients in uh, B2B, particularly in markets and in industries where what they produce could be considered uh, commodities. So, or the, where the, the actual product is not all that different from the competitors. And so how do you actually make that difference clear? Um, and that's what we're going to be talking about with that third test. And then the final test that we're going to be talking about today is how to make sure that it's repeatable. Now, this is particularly true in B2B marketing and sales. Just think about how often you are not present for the for all the discussions about your product, your service, and your message. Um, if you have to rely on somebody else at your prospective client or at, at their organization to make your case for you, then just put a quick why in the chat. So in other words, there are going to be times, think about this, where you've presented, let's say, to the technical lead uh, at your organization. So um and they have to then go talk to somebody else in their organization in order to get you another meeting, for instance. If that's a familiar thing for you, just put why in the chat. So as for a yes, um, let me know how many of you focus on that because that is a key thing. And so that's going to be the last test that we talk about today, uh, how to make sure that your message can pass that test as well. Oh, it looks like we've got some lucky people who don't have to have <laughs> their message repeated. But um, at the very least, you're going to need that message to be memorable to the person that you're talking to. So that's good. Oh, thanks, Patricia. Glad to know that you're in that situation as well. Okay. As we get started here, I want to make sure. Oh, thanks, Jennifer, uh, as well. So that repeatability, that's a key piece. Um, constantly, says Dan. Yeah. it's And I think it's one of those things that we don't think about a lot with our messages is how to make sure, so we could do a lot of work and I've spent a lot of time in sales, enable, in sales enablement and also marketing departments developing the tools for our, market, our sales teams to go out and talk to our um, business customers. Um, and just think, I mean, think about all the effort that you put into making sure that your salespeople or your frontline folks are able to create that message well. Just think, though, about and consider how well do you feel like your presentations, your messages, your sales materials, how well do they stand up without one of your folks there to present it? Because that's one of the things that we want to start thinking about at a high level. Are we going to get into the details of that today? Not at the depth of how are you going to craft a, you know, a presentation or a document that somebody else can present, but we are going to talk about some of the fundamentals of that. So if that all sounds good to you, then what I want to make sure that we're doing right now is just being really clear about some terms that I'm going to be talking about. Um, topic is probably one I'm going to mention the least because that's just generally what we're talking when we're talking about messages. The topic is just what is it, the kind of the loosest, biggest bucket that you could put it all in. And so in the terms of what we're talking about here with B2B messages, what we're talking here is about your vertical or industry, your market category, um, your general area of expertise, right? So if you're putting a message out there, let's say that you are um, an energy provider or that you work with utilities, um, as a fair amount of my clients do, and then it could be, you know, your general topic area is, you know, wastewater management, or it could be utilities or um, a fair number of clients, for instance, in life science or pharma. So it could be that kind of big bucket, or it could be a specific um, aspect even within that uh, of, let's say, okay, we're device manufacturers within that, um, or even a specific kind of device manufacturer. That's the topic. 
general subject matter of your message. Where we're going to be spending our most time today is actually on the next two. Now, the first one is the word idea. I'm going to use idea in place of constantly trying to say your product, your service, your offering, et cetera. I probably will still say that, but know that I'm default most of the time to talking about your idea. And what I'm what I mean with your idea is what is the answer uh, that your product, service, offering, et cetera, represents. Here's what I mean. Your clients and customers, uh, and particularly oftentimes their clients and customers are in one part of the world mentally. We're going to use this metaphorically. And they want to be someplace else, right? That there is another place that they're trying to get to. There is a goal they're trying to achieve. There's a problem they're trying to solve. And this is something that they are actively out there looking for, right? They're trying to figure out how do we get from here to there? Your idea, your product, your service, your offering is your answer for how they can get from where they are to where they want to be. Do they want to reduce the risk of um, something happening in their, in their utility? Okay, your product or service is the way to get there. Are they trying to improve patient outcomes? Your product service may be the way to get there. So that's very specific. So, and this should be also fairly clear to you <laughs> because these are your products and services and offerings. So the topic, general subject matter, idea, your product or service or offering that represents your company's answer for how your clients and their clients can get from where they are to where they want to be. And then finally, what we're going to be talking about the most today is the message. And that is specifically how you talk about your idea with a particular audience to achieve a particular outcome. Now, a quick note on this, best summarized by one of my favorite authors, uh, Agatha Christie. She said that words are only the outer clothing of ideas. And so I want you to think about this in the same terms as your messages are only the outer clothing of your ideas, your products and services, your content, your sales conversations, all your marketing platform, all of that is just a way those words, all of them are just a way to give shape to the product and service in a way that your audience understands. And you're putting them together in a specific way so that they achieve something on behalf of your clients so that they can achieve something on behalf of their clients. So here's another way to think about this. So your message is a thing that you're developing. But what's really important to understand is that there is for all the reasons I just talked about, there's not just one way to say what you need to say. There's not one set of words to talk about your idea because yes, it represents a part of your idea, the part of your idea, the angle, the aspect of your product and service that achieves a particular outcome for both you and your audience. Right. So it's this intersection. Um, if there's any Lord of the Ring fans out of here, I'm sorry to disappoint you that what this means is that there's not one message. There's not one sales deck. There's not one white paper to rule them all. We can have consistency and probably all my B2B marketing folks just like panicked. Don't worry, friends. I've got you, too. What we need is a consistent message, a coherent message. But we need one that is able to be customized to the audiences that we're talking about for particular outcomes. You're probably hearing that a lot from your sales folks anyway. So that's the kind of thing that we're talking about. So topic, 
message, uh, idea message. And what we're really talking about today is the message itself. Now, those three things, though, are the table stakes. If you don't have some sense of your what your product and service is or who it's for or what it needs to achieve, well, then I would suggest stopping here, going back and figuring that part out. However, I'm assuming that you all already have that. You have some good clarity around what your products and services are. You've got clarity around what you need to achieve with them. And you've got some clarity around what are the specific uh, clients, customer types, verticals, and industries that you are trying to sell into. So if we've got those, then you've got at least enough for your message to survive. But that's not all we want to do, right? We said there's a couple things that we wanted to do. And the first thing that we wanted to do is to stand out. Now, this is where, as I mentioned briefly earlier, this is one of those places where people get a little bit surprised because the way that I suggest, first and foremost, that your message is going to stand out is that if you find a way, and I'm going to show you how to do that, to make your message relevant first, that relevance is what's going to get your message to stand out. Now, first here, what do I mean by relevant? Well, very specifically, it's something that people want. So remember that image that I showed where your audience is in one place and they're, what they want is someplace else. That someplace else is the thing that they want. So the first thing that we want to do is make sure that we're always including something that, some, that those folks want because that's the only thing that's going to keep them engaged in their message. Now, here's, here's what I mean there. We as human beings are absolutely positively 100%, I agree with this, wired to notice what's different. It goes back to evolutionary things. It's, it allows us to notice that there might be danger once we notice that something is different in our worldview, in our, uh, you know, in our understanding, in our visual system, whatever. However, our brain is a fickle, fickle thing. And as soon as it registers that something is not a threat, if it's different but not a threat, it stops paying attention but it will continue to pay attention if something is related to something that they want, that you want, that your audience wants. I mean, think about it. It is really, really difficult to unwant a thing that you want. And it's also really, really hard to convince someone that they want something that they don't already know they want, right? So that's why what, we're, what we wanna make sure that the very first test that we need to pass is to make sure that you have identified their question, right? So what is the question that they are asking about right now that's indicating where they wanna be? So this is the first test. So as you see, if you've uh, had a chance to pull up the, the handout, you'll see on that handout, it's in a gray box. It says to test if your message is relevant, identify the question your audience wants an answer to. Then make sure it's A, a question that they would ask out loud to other people and be stated in their language, not yours. So here's what I mean. So for instance, um, I work with, uh, I work within, uh, with a life science startup here in the Boston area that produces um, medical tests urine tests, basically. That's, that's what they are. Um, and they are selling to the, the suppliers of, and, and, and not directly to patients, obviously, but they're direct, they're selling into, um, 
these hospital systems uh, for the distribution of this. Now, they want to sell these tests to those clients, right? So, but those clients are not saying, hey, how can we find better tests? Because right now they're not aware of any better tests than the ones they have. The question that their clients are asking right now is how can we keep our clients, how can we keep our patients on critical medications longer, right? So they're not asking about, hey, how can I get better tests? What they are asking is how can we improve what's called adherence to medications? How can we help keep people on those critical medications longer? Um, another example from um, uh, some for with, with companies that I've worked with, uh, particularly in B2B, um, we've got questions you know, where you might be thinking, for instance, or they might be thinking, um, how can we, well, use the wastewater utility plant, how can we, um, you know, the, the company, my company, my client may be thinking to themselves, all right, how can we get them to buy our software system, right? But by and large, their potential clients are not saying, how, what software system can we buy that's going to help us measure the quality of our water better? That's not the question they're asking. The question that their potential clients are asking is more like, how can we ensure the highest quality water at the lowest possible cost, right? How can we reduce risk to our end users while lowering costs? So what I'd love for you to do, if you're willing to share in the chat, is to start to just kind of a quick question. So I don't think there's anything proprietary about this. There shouldn't be anything proprietary about the kinds of questions that your audience is asking. But I would love to see what are some of the things that you are aware of that your clients are asking right now. Just pop those into the chat for me so I can get a sense of it. While you are doing that, um, sometimes I get the question, how do we find that out? How can we figure out what questions people are asking right now? Well, one of the best places to look and to check for those questions right now is with your frontline salespeople. They are very well tuned into what are some of the issues uh, and the questions that they are getting from people all the time. So yeah, Dan, how can we reduce price sensitivity, cart abandonment? How can I protect my IT network? Absolutely. Um, great examples there. Um, other folks, how can I reduce my business compliance risk? Absolutely. I've got a couple of couple, uh, clients right now in the security and resilience space. And so it's, that's, that is very resonant. That's, that's very, that's, those are great examples of uh, the questions that your audiences are asking. And by the way, I'm going to use audience just interchanging with clients and customers as well. Um, so your frontline staff people are a great place to talk to. Your customer experience people are also great people to understand what questions uh, are out there right now. Um, because, don't, I mean, you all know as well as I do that you want to make sure that you're answering the questions of your current clients just as well as you're ans uh, answering for them for your prospective clients. Other things that are very helpful, uh, looking at search strings that get people to your website. What is it that they are literally asking for when they're coming to you? Uh, to do more broad searches, uh, keyword searches, SEO searches, simple tools like answerthepublic.com. Uh, I'll prop that. Let's see if I can pop that in the chat real quick. Um, which what will what that will do is it will give you an array of questions around a specific keyword that people are asking. So you get to see in people's language what it is that they are asking. Um, and 
what's helpful about that is to think because you want to think about the, the the mental state from which your audience is thinking about you, right? They're not actually thinking about you. They're thinking about themselves. Um, and so you want to think about this question in terms of what is the specific pain point that is causing them to reach out? And even if they're not reaching out directly to you, we all know that CEB stat at this point about how much of the buying process or the decision process they've gone through before they're open to talking to a salesperson. Um, it's 57%. It's the last version of it I saw. Um, they are reaching out to try to answer that question. So the more that you can be specific about that, the more that your, your message is going to pass that first test. So identify that question and then make sure that when you're putting things out in the marketplace, that, that question is embedded in the message. So for instance, uh, my life science um, uh biotech client, their your sure is the name of their company. Um, they make sure that always in their messages, we help people stay on critical medications longer. There's more parts to that, but that's, a, that's always in the message. So test number one, make sure that that piece is in the message, that that question is in the message, because one, it makes sure that you are anchoring your message on something that your audience already wants, right? Which means Number two, it's going to get their attention because they are already looking for that answer, right? It's going to keep their attention because they haven't found that answer yet. So if they feel confident that you are going to be able to answer that for them, then they're going to not only notice you, but they're going to keep paying attention from this first test of relevance. You have something I want. And then they're going to pass into the second test, which is do I believe you indeed have the answer for me? And that's where the test of resilience comes in. Okay, so pressure test number two. So any questions, by the way, if you've got questions all along, please do put the pop of them in the chat. I will make some time at the end for this, of course, but I wanna make sure that if you've got questions as we're going, that, you, um, that I answer them. So if you've got questions as, as we go, clarifying questions, application questions, uh, just let me know in the chat and then I will, I will answer them there. Okay. So what do we mean by, or what do I mean by resilient? So we've got a relevant, if we've passed the first test, then we've made sure that there is something in the message that, that identifies the question that you answer for the audience. And then with resilient, what we're talking about here is whether or not they'll believe you, but the specific way that we're going to get there is what I'm going to call a story that they'll tell themselves. Now, let me explain what we what I mean by this. <laughs> the reason why this story that they're going to tell themselves, both to themselves and tell them and tell by themselves to other people, so that repeatability thing we were talking about earlier, something very important has to happen. It has to pass what I mentioned before, two different tests. It has to pass a kind of gut check. Does this, do I, you know, just the instant, hey, you say you have an answer to my question. Do I believe you? They're going to get that instant kind of yes or no, or is this, you know, there's an instant answer to, is this worth exploring further, right? That's the emotional kind of gut check. And then they are going to rationalize that decision to themselves. They literally are, their brains are going to craft a story to justify that decision. Now, the reason why that happens is because humans are rational. None of us are. Uh, your clients, your customers, their clients and customers, not rational 
they're not. <laughs> um, this the the well documented is that ninety five percent of business decision making that comes from Gerald Zaltman at Harvard Business School. Ninety five percent of decision making is unconscious. We're doing it without realizing it. That's the not rational part. Once we have our brains have kind of locked into a decision, then comes the rationalizing piece where we start to create an explanation for ourselves about how that works. So what that means is your message needs to make sense both emotionally to that gut check to them, and it needs to make sense to them intellectually. Uh, so to their to their hearts and to their brains. Oops, we went too far there. All right. So what do I mean by emotionally? We can talk about this a little bit more. In fact, this is the place where we're going to spend the most time today is in this kind of resilient piece. Um, but the what we're talking about here is emotionally, the message needs to validate how your audience um, already thinks and acts. Now, I know that's a little counterintuitive, um, if, but this is, <laughs> turns out to be true, that the best way to change thinking and behavior is not to challenge people's wants and beliefs, it's actually to validate what they're already thinking and believing. So the first gut check really comes when someone hears your message and goes, all right, that kind of makes sense. Yeah, okay. All right. Yeah, okay. That 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 is consistent with how I see the world. Now, if it's not consistent, for instance, if it's if it's surprising to them, if it's if it's counterintuitive to them, it doesn't mean that it's not going to pass this test, but it means that second test, the intellectual test is that much more important. So in this case, what we're talking about here is the audience needs to then be able to validate what you're saying with their own or with others' experiences. You know, in other words, that, that the case that you're making for your answer, so they have a question, you're saying, I, we have the answer, that the, your message is the map is kind of the case between one to the other, that needs to have no logical loopholes in it. It needs to make complete sense to them. Now, that may seem like a really high bar. Well, how can we make sure that there's like one thing that we can do to put our messages into place and allow us to do that? Well, there actually is an answer. And for that, I want us to do a quick little experiment here. Um, so I want you to read this eight word story. This is by the author E.M. Forster, who you see on the screen, who said, uh, who told us this story, the king died and then the queen died. Now, some of you might be saying that is a, that's a kind of an unfulfilling story because I've got a lot of questions. So I'm curious, as you read that story, what are some of the questions that come to your mind? Because every time I present this, people are they're like, wow, uh, I need more information. I've got some questions. So just pop in the, in the chat, if you will. What are some of the questions that come to mind as you read this short story? The reason why I put this up is because understanding what's happening here is going to help you understand exactly what's happening in your audience's mind when they read your message. Dan is saying, king and queen of what? Did the queen die because of the king's death? Or Kelvin, you're asking, is there a relationship between these two? Absolutely. What else are people seeing or questioning? How did they die? What was, says Christina, what was the time frame between? Yeah, these are classic questions of like, well, who were these people and where was this and what happened and why did it happen? 
So what this story does so beautifully is it really illustrates uh, in a very clear way uh, that your brain, your audience's brain is always seeking answers to a question. Always, always, always. They're always, it's always trying to fill in the blanks, but fill in the blanks of what? Well, it's trying to fill in the blanks of a story. It's trying to make everything make sense. It's trying to get the information it needs for everything to tie in together. It's something that, um, uh, oh, uh, Jahan, and forgive me if I'm exp- uh, saying your name incorrectly. You can also pop in the chat how to pronounce it correctly. What happens to the monarchy if both are dead? Right. We're looking for what will happen. We're looking for this thing that will, we're looking for the information that ties it all together and allows us to go, oh, that makes sense. And the way that our brains do this, and again, research shows this over and over again, is that what our brains are doing is quite literally structuring a story in our head of how the people and the events come together to produce an actual complete picture. So Forrester uh, talked about how he... um, Oh, we'll just back up a little bit here. Forrester talked about how this was the story. The king died and then the queen died. This kind of open-ended thing, but that the king died and then the queen died of grief. See, he called that a plot because all of a sudden then that kind of answered all the questions that provided the red thread. It provided a way for all of these things to make sense. Now, sometimes when I talk about story, um, the... People start to think, well, okay, we've got plenty of stories. We've got case studies of how we've helped our clients help their clients. Um, And is our brain really going, well, once upon a time in a galaxy far, far away? And the answer is no, that's not what's happening. Uh, What's happening is that your story is what we mean by your brain's explanation of cause and effect, right? And you saw that with the E.M. Forster story, that what your brain was trying to do, the questions that you were giving me, king and queen of what? Did they, the queen die because of the king's death? How did they die? What was the time frame? Um, what's going to happen after? Your brain, that process of establishing a reasonable connection between cause and effect, given the information that you have, is what we mean by story. And those stories that we create in our heads have very predictable components. Now, one of the things that's really key when we're trying to drive action from our messages, particularly in the case of sales and marketing, is that one of the key components of a story that does that is something that is called a moment of truth. Now, every story, every kind of classic fiction story, every classic retelling of a nonfiction story, and the best cases, which are essentially are the stories that people will tell themselves, have this moment of truth. And that's when somebody has to choose right, between what they want, what they believe, and what they currently do or are doing or have done. Right. So it's the moment of truth happens um, when, there is, when they have to choose between what they want, what they believe, and what they do. So the second piece that your message, particularly when it's in longer form, right? So you can have a, a piece of your message that um, establishes that you're going to give people something that they want, right? Okay, we want to reduce the risk in our business, uh, reduce business compliance risk. I want to protect my IT network. I want to reduce price sensitivity and cart abandonment. If you have, like, if you have a conversation, if your salesperson goes in and says, so, you know, we're here today to talk about how we can help you reduce price sensitivity of your clients and customers, 
they're going to say, great, that's fabulous, but how? Well, the answer then somewhere in that needs to create one of those moments of truth. So this is where we're going to start to test this message here is we're going to look at these things all together. Um, and this is where the document, the second document that was at tamsintogo.com or the link that Alicia shared earlier in the um, chat is going to be helpful. Because to test if your message is resilient, we want to make sure that it has this, we've created this kind of mental tension in your audience's mind. And so there's three things that your audience is, that we need to make sure that are included in that message. First, does it include something that the audience already believes is true, right? So does it, does it, does it include something that they already believe? For instance, with my wastewater utility client, do they already believe that um, the best solutions stop problems before they start? Like, or it's best to stop problems before they ever start, right? So it's a way of basically saying it's better to be proactive than reactive, better to stop a fire from happening than to have to fight it later. Does it conflict with something they already do? So again, back to my wastewater utility client. Um, if they're sampling once a problem has happened, right? And they believe the best way to solve a problem they, is before it starts. Well, now you've created attention where they have put what they want to reduce the risk of, of um, contamination in the system. They have put what they wanted in jeopardy. So those are three things that we're going to, that you want to figure out for your audience and for your message. How can you do that? What is something that they want? Good news. You've already established that with that question that, that your, uh, your idea answers, your product or service or offering answers. Then what you're trying, you're, and you probably already know what the common approach is right now. But the next thing you want to do is to say, okay, how, what is it that we can identify that they already believe or is at least consistent with something that they believe about the world that's going to help us do that? So this is one of, this is where I would suggest at this point that we um, take, a, take a look at the conversational case document, if you've got it, that, um, that you could download at uh, tamsintogo.com or uh, I think the other link was tamsinwebster.com slash B2B. I'm going to copy it again and paste it down at the bottom. So it's right at the bottom of the chat for everybody. Um, okay. And what this is going to do, uh, and I'm not going to walk you through deep detailed here, but I can later, once we get to the q and I can spend more time on this if that's useful to you. But what you'll see when you open that document up is that it, it is a tool that, and this is the tool that I use with my clients, but this is a tool that you can use yourself to quickly sketch out kind of essentially back of the envelope type of uh, case making a underlying structure for your message. And it goes something like this, you know, when I, or we speak with wastewater utility managers, they often want to know how can we do, reduce the risk of contamination of our system so that we can deliver the best quality product to our clients and customers and reduce overall risk to our business. When looking for that answer, they often focus on the results of the samples they get once there's been an alert that something is wrong in the system, once something in the, in the utility itself has said, hey, we've got a problem. And they focus on that more than on the system as a whole. That makes sense because 
to date, there hasn't been a way for them to monitor the entire system. Samples are really the only way they can go out there and get those results. But this is where this belief comes in. Yet we can all agree it's true that it's better to stop problems before they start, right? That's why our product, says my client, is, is a way that allows you to see everything that's happening in your system simultaneously. How do we do that? Et cetera, et cetera. So it allows you to kind of just think through and use your brain's natural question answer type device that it's got going on in there to kind of surface the story that's already happening in your company about your products and services. Because that actually is what happened about your products and services is that once upon a time, um, to use a story phrase, someone somewhere in your organization said, hey, you know what? People have this question or maybe I have this question and everybody else is kind of looking at the problem this way. But what if we looked at the problem this way? Because after all, we, this is true about the world or, or I've dis, we've discovered this is true based on our own proprietary research. So if that's all true together, then what if we did this thing, this different thing instead? Because that would not only get the thing that you are looking for, um, but it also would allow us to accomplish much more and be able to actually not only know exactly what was happening in the system, say for the wastewater utility, we'd actually be able to have the data that would allow the contributors to that system to start changing their behavior and, and starting and stopping those problems even further upstream than we ever currently could have dreamed. So this tool will help you kind of walk through those elements of your own message. Um, it will help you identify that question. It will help you identify where are they focused right now versus where are, is your attention focused? It will help you kind of get a draft out of like, what is something that they already believe or is something they can validate for themselves? And why does that add up to what our answer is? So again, I'm happy to go through this in more detail during the Q&A, but I wanted to show that you have this because this tool will help you identify those elements of your message that make it pass now both that relevant test and the resilience test. It'll help make sure that you've identified what about your product or service answers something that people already want. And then second, make sure that you have everything that you've built a case for it that is consistent with how they see the world, right? Because it's, um, oh, you're welcome, Christina. I'm glad you're finding that tool helpful. Um, it's going to pass that emotional check because it's going to identify what they already believe and what they already want. And it's going to be resilient because it's going to fill in all of those holes that your audience's brain is always looking for. So I do like a whole separate workshops on exactly which, what those elements are and what those pieces are. And I often work with companies to, to actually kind of learn what those components are and learn how to fill them in for themselves. Um, but this is a tool I've used over and over again, even with people who don't have that background. And the reason why it works is like I said before, your brain knows how to fill this in uh, because your brain knows how to build these kinds of stories all the time. And so you're using your brain to do that. Okay. Once we've got a relevant, resilient message, now we've got the opportunity to make sure that it stands out. Because sometimes a relevant and resilient message isn't enough. Uh, I would say that oftentimes this is particularly more true with my B2B clients than B2C because, um, because of the, the length and the duration and the intensity of 
RFP processes and sales cycles, et cetera, if you don't have a product that answers people's questions and if you don't have a case for that product or service that stands up to all of that pressure, then you probably aren't selling a lot or doing very well with that aspect of your product or service. Uh, and if you aren't, if you do have a product or service that isn't doing well, sometimes go back and look and maybe the message, maybe the case for it isn't as strong as it could be. So this is where we have to figure out how is it that you can present what at least from the outside could seem to be a very similar product to the rest of the marketplace. Um, sometimes you have in fact truly invented something new. Great. Well, this is still going to help you identify how to make that newness very, very clear to your audience. Um, and uh, if you haven't identified what's going to be new, good news is you've actually done, if you've done that, made the case for it, you've done a lot of the work already. Okay. So what do I mean by remarkable here? Well, what I mean by remarkable is you want to make sure that something in your message, in how you're talking about your idea right now, in addition to making sure that it's relevant to them, in addition to making sure that you've got a case waiting that's resilient for it, there needs to be something in that message right at the top that is something that they don't expect, something that is unfamiliar, unexpected, unconventional, counterintuitive. They need to hear something different. Yes, this is what is going to kind of you know, capture their attention. But we've remember, it's not, how do I want to say this? You know, what's, what's different gets attention, but relevance keeps attention. So we've, by doing the work of relevance and resilience first, when you get their attention with a different message, you know it's going to stand that test of time. You know it's going to be strong enough because it's connected to something that they want. And you've got a really, really strong case for how to explain that product or service to somebody else. Now, the good news is, is that, that what's remarkable about your product or service, what truly is different or unexpected, is rooted in what made it relevant and resilient in the first place. And what is that? Well, it gets back to this worldview. It gets back to how your company sees the world, how your company sees and perceives the problems that it solves, how your company sees and perceives why your products are the best ones for your audiences to achieve certain outcomes. Now, I've spent 25 years in brand and message strategy, and I've spent the last 10 of that very working very, very closely with sales teams as well. And it is a pretty rare person that doesn't believe in the business that they represent either on the marketing or sales side. And so this, this, the reasons why you believe that the company that you work for is the right, is the better, is the right answer for your company, even in itself has a great source of richness for how you can talk about your idea in a way that's going to make it remarkable. Now, what are all the different aspects of that worldview that have an opportunity to be different where you can highlight the, the, the perspective of how you do something different than everybody else? Well, kind of everywhere. There's the different audiences. So you may, for instance, have a tool that really helps this kind of technical lead at your client or customer. And you may also have something that, that deals with the kind of the answers and the questions of the C-suite um, or vice versa or that you really focus on the frontline folks at an, at an organization and not on, and not on leadership. 
and some some other company does. So even the audiences that you choose are is a way to be remarkable because when the language that you choose, remember, words are only the outer clothing of ideas. When the language that you choose basically says, I'm speaking to the technical lead, right? And nothing else does, then you start to make it really clear to the technical lead. You're like, oh, this is remarkable because they really know what it is that I'm talking about. And they see the world the way that I do. Um, which questions that you solve, right? So just because you share an industry with somebody else or some other companies, you may be actually solving different questions for shared audiences. Even if the audiences are shared, the questions may be different. Um, so think about you know, what those fundamental questions are or even how you frame a questions. Um, uh, so Christina, I see a question for me. It brings up a good, good question. Yay. Uh, for B2B, there are several layers within the organization. How can you make sure the message resonates all the way up to the decision-making chain? So a couple different ways. Um, and a lot of them actually, Christina, are back in that tool that I shared. Um, one is, so there's a couple different things. One is that it needs to anchor into something that is true throughout the organization, right? So back in the tool, if you'll notice the third block, you know, once it says, when I speak with, they often want to know, the answer to they often want to know is that question that they're asking right now. The next blank, so they can, that speaks to something larger that they're trying to achieve. And what I find is that that something larger they're trying to achieve oftentimes is the question of the next layer up. Here's what I mean. If you're talking to someone who, for instance, is quite technical in the organization, so slightly lower down in the organization, and they're asking a very technical question, the reason why they're asking that technical question is because they're trying to achieve something kind of slightly larger, right? So I'm asking this very technical question um, because I want to reduce contaminants, but I'm asking that for the larger reason because I want to reduce risk. Now, when you kind of come in with a, the version of that message that is designed for your this, that next level up, say the C-suite, they're probably asking that larger question, how can we reduce risk? And then so that we can <laughs> maximize profits, kind of ensure shareholder value, those kinds of things. So oftentimes they link up that way through what it is that people want. Um, the second place that they tend to link up and message all the way through is in that belief statement. What I find oftentimes, and you probably can think about this within your organization as well, is that there are certain concepts that are true throughout the full organization. So when I'm working with companies on developing messages generally, you know, this is one of the things that we always spend a lot of time on is what I call that truth statement because it reflects that moment of truth. Oftentimes that kind of message is a, is a baseline operating assumption of the, of the organization. Um, so for instance, I, I know I keep mentioning the wastewater utility clients, uh, but I can, I can, I can reference many others, but the, the kind of core belief there was this, as I said, this, um, in, there was actually two that we kind of go back and forth with. One was depending on the message. One was the best place to stop problems is before they start. Um, and they feel very particularly confident based on their kind of all their clients that the clients that are going to be open to their product and service, which is because what they have is actually both, um, are going to believe that too. 
And that's important because if your client, if you have a belief that's a basic operating assumption for you that is not shared by your clients and customers, then there's just nothing that's going to bring that back, right? Like that's that's one of the hardest things to do in messaging, whether it's sales or marketing messages, is to get someone to believe something that goes against what they believe to be true right now. Um, I have a whole keynote on that actually. Um, and it's something that's known as the Semmelweis effect. And it's what happens when people reject new information simply because it conflicts with what they believe to be true. Uh, so it's always best to start with what they believe to be true. So the way to get this to kind of anchor up all the way through the, the chain of decision-making is make sure it's rooted in those things people want and in those things that are gonna be shared beliefs throughout the organization. What you'll find is uh, generally what I find is that what happens is that the, the, the entry to this kind of core case that this tool helps you build and the exit is a little different depending on what layer that you're talking to, right? So if you're talking to a technical lead, the entry is going to be a technical question. The exit, the here's how we do that is going to be very technical, but the core tends to be very similar from one audience to the next. So the CEO audience, for instance, the more strategic, the more higher level C-suite audience may have a more general kind of risk-based question. But then again, the core, oftentimes what happens is the core of that message actually doesn't change very much because it really does keep coming down to, well, we're focusing on the samples, not the system. You can talk about that very technically with a technical person, but you can also talk about it very clearly and conceptually with the with the C-suite in a way that they're going to go, oh yeah, I understand generally what we do with the samples and generally that only getting samples rather than looking at the system as a whole. A, I agree those two relate, but I get it, right? And then the actions coming out are going to be different. So hopefully that answers your question, Christina. If, uh, if, if that raises more questions or if that didn't answer your question, let me know. Um, but that question piece, which is what on screen right now is like, that's one of the things that I'm talking about here is like, that's how just even back to this relevance piece, so many companies, and this is true B2B and B2C don't, they're so worried about being remarkable with their message that they miss the relevance piece first. And, you know, a lot of times, and I love him. I love Seth Godin. I really do truly like a indirect mentor. He's, I consider him a mentor. He doesn't know me from Adam. Um, but a lot of times people are very familiar with his phrase, like, you know, be the purple cow, right? Be remarkable. And what my experience shows is that that's important, but only once you've already established that people want what you have. In other words, we spend so much time worrying whether or not our cow is purple enough that we forget to check to make sure their audience is actually shopping for milk, right? So, we need to make sure that piece is there. And so just figuring out like what questions you answer for folks is a, is a really useful way to get that remarkableness. What problems do you solve? In other words, okay, well, what's behind those questions? What are the things, you know, what are the, what are those, what are the kind of root issues that you solve? Um, you know, thanks to things like the challenger methodology for sales, et cetera, we've gotten better and better identifying this. Um, but what I find is actually being able to frame it in a way that the audience really understands um, is a place where there's still a lot more work. But that framing of the problem can also help as well. Um, because one of the biggest things that I see, back to Christina's question about getting a message to work at multiple layers, is that we tend to only, uh, how do I want to say this? We, we tend to explain it 
if I see one thing more than anything else is that we tend to rely on the expert definition or the technical explanation of our idea, um, kind of at the exclusion of everything else. We forget that we have to go back and give people kind of a conceptual understanding of it as well. Let me give you an example with an analogy. It's kind of like when you go to put in directions for Google Maps, for instance, um, it doesn't start with, okay, take a right, right? It actually, the very first thing that it pops up on screen is an overview. And then it gives you an opportunity to kind of go and look at everything, right? And, and say, oh, okay, I see the general route. I agree with that route before going in and saying, okay, I've started the navigation now, tell me exactly when to turn right and when to turn left. I want you to be thinking about your messages the same way. Most organizations, and particularly B2B organizations, are spectacular at the turn-by-turn -turn explanation of their message. They are really, really good at explaining at fine detail exactly how their product works, exactly what the technology that goes into it, um, and in technical language, why that's important. The good news and the bad news, the bad news first is that, that they don't often have a way to give the overview, right? But the good news is that the overview exists because the overview is what produced the technical in the first place. What we basically have to do is kind of back up and kind of make sure that we have that as well. So that's the frame piece. Um, the values, that's talking about the beliefs uh, and those things that create the moment of truth that I was talking about before, um, the approaches. So how are you doing this? And I don't even mean that, you know, this is what, leads to the processes that you take and the products that you develop and even the style and the look and feel of, of what you do. Um, you know, there's probably no better example of that than a B2C example of, you know, fundamentally a computer is a computer is a computer. Do you have a different operating system? Yes. But, you know, particularly in the early days, the look of an Apple Macintosh was so fundamentally different than a PC. Um, even though they fundamentally did the same thing, right? The output was the same. They answered the same question, um, that that style spoke to people um, as did the approach and all those other things. So these are all places where you can fundamentally do what you need to do to pass this third test, which is to identify what you own. And what, it, whoop, uh, that's what happens when you hit the wrong button. Ah, something's hitting a button. Oh no. <laughs> you get a little preview there. Um, so what you're trying to do with identifying what you own is uh, looking back through, honestly, that tool that I've given you to, and, and looking at it and saying, what are these places of all these things? Where, where are the places that's different? And what, I'm, what you're looking for here, and again, go back to the handout to see this, is that you know, identify at least one aspect of your worldview or case that is for your products or services that is distinctive to your organization. Um, the more remarkable aspects you have, obviously, the more remarkable your message is going to be. But there's kind of two criteria I want to make sure that you're passing here on this as well. One is that others would agree that what you've chosen is unfamiliar, unexpected, or counter to conventional wisdom. Uh, and that's key. There's a lot of times when I've seen people, messages are like, hey, look at this thing. It's different. And yet the market is like, mm, either I don't see how it's different. And that's a messaging issue. Um, or it actually isn't all that different. You've just convinced yourself that it is. More often than not, I find that it's just a messaging issue, that it really is different. You just haven't brought that back out. Um, and then the second thing, and I need to say, say this just so that we're super clear on it, is that whatever is remarkable about your organization, it needs to be true. Um, I see this less in B2B 
clients and companies where they're just kind of reaching and kind of aspirationally saying that this is going to solve all your problems. Uh, B2B companies, again, because of the rigorous process that you have to go through in order to sign on, onboard a client, all of those things, um, uh, those things you know, you already have done that resilience test. And by the way, the resilience test will always happen, help you make that as well. One last thing on this, and I see there's another question coming from Courtney, so I'll answer that right after this. Um, never sacrifice clarity in your message for cleverness, ever, 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 ever. I mean, being remarkable is not enough, especially in the long term. People, back to that purple cow, people have to want to buy what you have to sell. So I would, you know, I, I know it probably breaks some kind of secret marketer's oath, but I would far rather you have a boring white paper title, blog post title, whatever, that covers what it is that people actually want, than you have some kind of clever, new, crazy name for something, or that you have invented a, a name for a process that people don't fundamentally understand first. Make sure they understand where you're going, back to the map analogy, before you make it fancy, right? So never, never sacrifice clarity for cleverness. Okay. With those three things together, what you've got now is you've got, you. if you've done those, you've identified what people want, you've got what's relevant. If you've made a case that will stand up to both the kind of emotional and intellectual tests, it's going to be resilient. If you've gone through and found or articulated even more clearly what makes you, what you can own distinctly, uh, then you've actually passed that third test for what's remarkable. Okay. Um, so let me pause here before we go to the next one, which is how do we make it repeatable? And in B2B marketing, marketing how important is it to appeal to customers' emotions? Well, Courtney, it's super important, but probably not in the way that a lot of us have been told or taught. Um, and the, the tool that I gave you, that worksheet, that conversational case, um, kind of de facto evokes, uh, evokes emotions without ways that are overtly manipulative, which I don't agree with. Okay. So let me, let's talk about how, where emotions are helpful and therefore what's the best way to engage them. Emotions from your audience are helpful because remember that is the first check. The first check, it's the it's the it's it's how they're feeling right now that is making them search for an answer. It is how they feel about the answers they find that are determining whether or not they are going to keep reading or keep listening or whatever. It's how they feel about if it's an in-person or now on Zoom interview or conversation, sales message conversation. Um, they are going to respond. What they decide is based on how they feel about that. Now, so those are reasons why it's all important, which we, we make, we have to make sure, make sure that we are responding to those feelings, right. But in a way that works, particularly in a B2B environment. Now, what typically does not work in a B2B environment is, um, once upon a time type stories, right? That doesn't, even though that often will work one-on-one uh, -on -one and B2C and kind of outside of a business environment, my experience is that when you introduce a, well, you know, there was, you know, once upon a time, there was this, you know, this um, you know, provider of, uh, let's see, there's a battery manufacturer, right? And they had this horrible problem. When you lead with that, uh, a lot of times my experience is, is that 
kind of your decision groups and your kind of proposal review committees and there, they're kind of like, there's a little bit of eye rolling that happens when it happens first. Because when it happens first, when we try to engage people's emotions that way, like, you know, through a dramatically told case study or some such, it feels manipulative to people because they kind of know that that's what you're trying to do. Now, does that mean that case studies aren't useful? Oh, heck no, I don't mean that. Case studies can be very useful, but usually they come after people have agreed in principle with kind of what your idea is and why it works. Then they want to see examples of how it works for them. So that's one thing. Second, another thing that uh, we've been taught, and I mentioned the challenger sale earlier uh, as a methodology, and it's particularly prevalent there, um, is in uh, amplifying your customer's pain um, and their pain points. And you know, whether it's them or the kind of Miller-Hyman method methodology that says like, what keeps you up at night? I mean, what you're trying, what, what you're trying to do in those cases is, is um, peg on and respond to the pain somebody's feeling in that moment. Couple things about that. One, my experience is, is that particularly in B2B clients, they expect you to already know what their pain point is. And in fact, you establish a great deal of credibility when you say, when we speak, speak to other people like you, they have this question or they're experiencing this issue right now, right? That's why in the conversational case, the first two blanks are essentially that. When we speak with people like you, they often wanna know blank. Right? So first thing is, is that by establishing and speaking to their pain, you are, finding yourself in a position where you're with them, right? You're down in the trenches with them. That is important because as I just mentioned, it shows your credibility and it shows that you understand the world that they, the way they do. Now there is a kind of pain, however, that doesn't work well long-term. And that is the pain when you amplify the pain of something that they are not doing, right? And what I mean by that is, um, in the wrong hands, uh, the you know approach like the challenger methodology or something similar, where they tell you to make the pain of the status quo exceed the pain of change, or where you're uh, to quote challenger exposing the flaws or misinformation in the customer's approach and and revealing to them something better. In the wrong hands, that introduces a a, a kind of mental pain to your audience that can be uh, fatal to your message. And that mental pain is making your client or customer feel that they are not smart, not capable, or not good, right? That they, they somehow um, were wrong or stupid or whatever to be doing what they're doing right now. So that's why, even as I was explaining that conversational case, why it's important to make sure that when you're identifying what people are doing right now, like with my wastewater example, and I was talking about taking samples, that you validate why that why that's the approach that they're taking. Um, you want to say there's a good reason why you take samples because that's how you know exactly what's happening in that organization. And it and since I already know that you're trying to reduce costs, it's not fiscally responsible or even possible for you to be taking samples everywhere all the time. You just can't do it. Right. So what you're trying, what you want to do at any point is avoid that kind of pain, right? Pain where you're identifying and empathizing with them and saying, hey, we understand this is really difficult, that you haven't had the answer to this question. It's creating consequences that you don't that you don't like. Um, that's good pain. Bad pain is anything that makes them go, 
well, that was silly. Why were you doing it that way? Didn't you know that you should have been doing something else? I'm sure none of you would ever frame it that way, but I hear it from like the, the receiving end of these messages all the time from clients that they're like, oh, I just, they just made me feel like I was dumb. So what we're trying to do make sure is that, um, that we're capturing those emotions in a, in a, in a productive way. So that's why, you know, the, the kind of positive emotions that you can, and the way, the way that you can anchor that well is again, anchor it in something that they want, even if that's a problem that they're trying to solve right now. Second, when you introduce a problem that they don't know about, right, where they're focusing on X more than on Y, for instance, the issue, what you're trying to do there is still validate what they're doing first. So, you know, I do a whole workshop just on that tool and we spend a lot of time really talking about how do you make sure that you introduce an unknown problem in a way that doesn't set off that kind of like, no reaction. Um, And then third, you are by kind of creating that moment of truth where you've given them a way to see forward that still allows them to validate how they feel, then, then actually you're using a very positive emotion of, of kind of strategy and I'm going to be able to help solve this problem on my own, right? So all of those things are very important to appeal to customers' emotions. In B2B though, I find that you have to kind of take a side door into those emotions and you have to kind of use a logical case that activates their emotions rather than start with their emotions and then use that to make a case. So hopefully I'd answer your question, Courtney, if not, or if that raised more, pop those into the chat. Okay. The last thing I want to dive into um, before opening up to broader questions as we have them or more detail where you want it um, is this, this last piece on repeatable. How do you get to a point where there's something in your message um, or even a summary of the message itself, where it's something that they can't unhear. Because even with a relevant, resilient, remarkable message, there's still one last challenge that you have to solve. And it's one that we mentioned right at the beginning of the call. Someone at your prospective client or customer at your current client customer has to be able to repeat your message and probably without you there. And think about it this way, even if they have your deck or some other kind of discussion document, I just want you to just sit back here. And I mean, if you're comfortable putting, you know, Y for yes or no, N for no in the chat, do. But how comfortable you feel given your current sales team, your current materials, how comfortable would you be? Like, are you comfortable that your client could represent? And I mean, represent, like represent your message, represent it accurately from only the materials that you've got without one of your salespeople are there. Are you, do you feel like you could do that? Just Y or N for yes or no in the chat. Um, Most folks that I talk to are like, well, it's great if our person's there um, or it's great if we can walk somebody through it, but I'm not so sure that my client could do it alone. And yet think about it. The, the, the number of times that your audience, thanks, Christy, for your answer. Um, the number of times you're, that message is going to have to be repeated probably more times without you there than when you're there. So that's why it's really important through all of this to make sure that it's not just accurate and captures what you want to say within your organization. It's really important that it's something that somebody else can say. Remember, it's a story that they can tell themselves not just to themselves, but tell by themselves to other people. So 
All right. How do we, how do we get there? Um, well, one thing that's important to understand is that the, if you can't get it to a point where people do that, you, the all that hard work you've put into the relevance and resilience and remarkability of remarkableness of your message is just going to go to waste. Why is that? Because people don't remember content. They remember ideas, right? So for instance, you're not going to remember the words of the old fable, the tortoise and the hare story word for word, but you remember the general idea, right? You probably remember word for word the 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 moral of the story: haste makes waste. But I'm going to be surprised if you remember every single word after word after word of the fable itself. Do you remember the concepts and generally what happened? Yes, that's because people don't remember content; they remember ideas. In fact, the research shows that 70% of the details of a story disappear with five or six retellings. I can't imagine, though I haven't been able to find a similar stat for like reading a deck or for instance, that it's going to be much different though, because A, decks are usually not even as interesting as the story. Um, and second, five or six retellings is probably pretty accurate for how many times your message is going to have to be retold without you present in your prospective client's audience. So that's why on top of everything else, we need to make sure that your ideas are simple enough and strong enough to stand out and stick in people's minds. And so one of the things that I like to be able to do is to, is to make sure with my clients is to make sure and to help other people do is to make sure that you can summarize in a sentence at very least the big idea of a particular message, right? We want to be able to say, um, you know, that the best way to reduce risk in your wastewater plant is to use data to spot the problems before they start. Okay. All right. You may want to know more about that and what that actually means, but you now know that that one sentence contains the whole idea. Ideally, you want that one sentence to include something that is both desired and different. And if you're thinking to yourself, huh, this sounds pretty familiar, then yeah, if you've done the work on the other three tests, then you've got the ingredients for this one as well. That you've got a way to be able to articulate really clearly and quickly in your message, what is it that's desired in it? What is it? What does it have that your audience already wants? We want to reduce risk. We want to um, uh, reduce pr price sensitivity. We want to uh, improve, we want to help people stay on critical medications longer. Uh, we want to um, improve uh, our, uh, we want to reduce our error rate, right? All of those things are what it wants, what, you know, something that's desired. And if you pull from something that's remarkable in your message, you're going to be able to add that aspect that's different as well. So the best way to keep people on critical medications longer is to make the invisible visible, to turn the effects they can't feel into results they can see, right? Being able to combine those two things in a single sentence. Now, at the very least, be able to summarize your entire message, your entire value proposition, positioning, if you want to think of it that way, in that desired different kind of formula. And then uh, secondarily as important is to kind of make sure that some of those key concepts can be suffered, uh, can be suffered, can be summarized in the same way. So the test, as you'll see uh, in on the, if you go back and look at the, um, handout is that 
make sure that that message, that summary sentence of your message contains something that your audience already wants. You know, that's the question you identified earlier, way back in the relevance test number one. Two, that it contains something that is unexpected or unfamiliar in delivering that. And that, by the way, can come from pretty much any of the blanks on that tool that I gave you from the resilience test, right? That conversational case test tool. Third, I highly recommend that there is no unfamiliar to your audience terms or language. They need to be able to say something about what your product or service does and how it does it without language that doesn't immediately make sense. They can go name it afterwards, right? Okay, we need to, um, uh, you know, we've got you know, whatever your product name is for a particular thing, but they need to be able to say what it does kind of in that overview map way first before you add any unfamiliar approach or language. And I highly recommend that you do your best to keep that summary statement at 140 characters or less. What is it about that? length that's important. Well, yes, it's an old school tweet. Um, but more importantly, that typically when you can get something down into that range of shortness, uh, when it's stating a concept, you've actually brought it into the range of what the vast majority of proverbs, idioms, sayings, adages, haste makes waste, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you could do for your country, um, time is money, all of those things are proverbs. And research shows that the average proverb is actually 123 characters or less. Um, but they are those sayings that stick in our head. My favorite example of this is to actually, if you've ever noticed that some famous quotes, like from a movie, for instance, if you go back and you watch the movie, you're like, they never actually said that. So I know it's reaching really far back, but a very, very famous quote uh, from a movie called Casablanca, you know, is Play it again, Sam. Play it again, Sam. Definitely under 140 characters. But in the actual movie, the quote goes something like, play it one more time, Sam. Play it from memory. Play it for the good old days. You know, And it's, it's much longer. But over the retellings, what has happened, it's simplified into something that fits that criteria. So with this approach, what I'm suggesting is if you start your message as being able to back it down to that criteria, you're much more likely that it's going to stick because you've they'll be able to kind of blow up that little thumbnail version of your message into the larger case that you've already built. So when done well, your summary statement is in fact that red thread I talked about earlier, that kind of that that thing that starts the path to people being able to connect their question with your product or service as it's as the answer for them. All right, so I'm gonna take a quick pause here. We've got about uh, 10, 12 minutes. I'm trying to figure out based on all my different clocks, which are slightly different. Um, uh, about 13 minutes uh, before the end of the workshop. So I'd be happy to answer questions for folks right now. I'm gonna actually stop my screen share. I'm gonna come back right at the end for, for um, just do a quick wrap up, but in the meantime, I'd love to answer any questions that people have right now. Um, let me start as you're thinking about that with some of the more common ones that I get from folks. Um, does this take a long time? <laughs> is one of the most common ones. Um, generally, I find that no, actually, you're, that, that to be able to do a quick version of that 
conversational case, which by the way, helps you pass all of the tests, um, is something that most people can do even without any explanation from me. You just kind of fill in the blanks. Uh, is it going to be perfect? No, but is it going to be that much better than it would have been had you not thought through it? Uh, absolutely. Having just even going through and starting to see the case for your message outlined um, is oftentimes a really great way for you to identify places that it can get stronger. Um, again, as you're thinking about other, other questions that might be useful to you, um, one of the things that uh, I often, again, hear from folks uh, or wonder from folks is, okay, well, this is great. I've got some kind of quick thing. How do I turn it into content from here? How do we do more things with it? Well, when it comes to sales messages or sales conversations, one of the first ways to think about it, and actually this is true for longer content as well, is that each of those blanks on that tool, that conversational case tool that I gave you, um, each of those blanks actually is a, a place to add more information. It's a place to have a conversation. <laughs> There's a reason why it's called a conversational case um, to actually for your salesperson or your executive or whatever to have a conversation with somebody about something. So for instance, when we're speaking with folks like you, they often want to know, and then you put that question that they're asking, is that what you're seeing as well? Right? What, you know, how does that manifest for you? Like you can either do it as an, as a conversation and or start to provide additional information. So they often ask this question. Sometimes it, it manifests like this or that or the other thing. Uh, we're seeing these consequences. Uh, we're seeing these effects. Is that what you're seeing too? Right. And this is frustrating because what they're trying to achieve are these larger goals. Again, is that what you're seeing? Um, and so each of, those each of those points is a place to spend a little bit more time, add a little bit more information and uh, be able to provide that additional context, content, et cetera, of what you're looking for to begin with. Any other questions from folks? Uh, as I see, I know I was answering all the way throughout, but anything else that would be useful? Um, as marketers, uh, oh, yay, questions, fabulous. All right, how do you recommend we get out of our heads when it comes to pedaling back from our very technical explanation of our solution? Um, well, uh, one of the ways to do that is to go to folks in your organization. I mean, I, one of the easiest ways to do that is to talk with people and to test it with people, you know, ideally in your organization first, that don't have the technical background that came, you know, that started with it. Um, I, I sometimes joke, though I'm dead serious, that, that the entirety of my job is translating expertise to English. Um, and that oftentimes, if you're in marketing or sales, is your job too, right? Like your job is to try to translate that expertise into information and to language that people actually understand um, so that you can get the attention, the impact, the income that you're looking for. I think the best way to do that is, is um, I mean, it's, it's part of the reason why I developed this tool in the first place is because, you know, when I, both when I was on the organizational side and when I was on agency side, um, this is what was people struggled with the most, which was how do we, how do we do that? And so from the perspective of just, just having to kind of create a case for it where the blanks are short uh, and you know that what you're trying to do is describe it conceptually first um, goes a long way. 
But at the very least, I'd say talk to people in your organizations. Maybe they're junior people. Um, sometimes, you know, I'm, I, I've got two sons that are 10 and 12. Um, I'll often run explanations by them first, because if they can understand it conceptually, then you know that it will be a container for the more technical stuff. So um, start with a conceptual piece and then find the way, the path to, the, to them together. Um, next question, how does any mention or discussion of the competition or competitive landscape factor in once the message is delivered? Um, so there's a couple different places where you can incorporate the competitive approach or what competitors do. Typically, in at least in the flow of the tool that I share, the conversational case, um, I will introduce the competitors at that where the market conventional wisdom, et cetera, where people tend to focus now. But a lot of the answers lie over here, right? A lot of the answers lie in improving your sampling technique, or a lot of the answers lie in improve, improving you know, the, the blood tests, or the, a lot of the answers apply in, um, you know, if we're trying to reduce uh, kind of error rate or in battery manufacturing or something like that, um, that, that it's in... Um, you know, precision mechanics of things, right? Trying to get those things different. Your ability to say, hey, all right, that makes sense. Why you would focus over here at X, Y, and Z. A um, couple of things you can do there. One is to say, and yet still some of these problems persist, right? So what else is going on? Well, that's why we started to focus over here, right? So that's one place to do it. The second place to do it is once you've articulated your approach, like once you've gotten to this, so that's why our recommendation is to, um, that's another place to really draw the contrast between what you're doing and what they're doing. Um, what I found over and over again is that this, uh, this approach really allows folks to be able to kind of change the whole nature of the conversation. Again, in the way that a challenger methodology approach is meant to do, um, I find this is a little bit more of a fail-safe way to get to that kind of just completely changing the conversation. Because when you come in and say, hey, you know what? Actually, what, our, what we're doing is like allowing you to access all the data in the system rather than just what you pull out in samples. Or you're able to say, well, we're able to get you the same results as a blood test, but immediately... Or you're able to say, we're able to kind of just give you an, um, an approach or take an approach that nobody else has. You're able to really just change the whole conversation. Um, and that can be very useful, particularly from the remarkableness standpoint. All right, last question I see here. Do you suggest giving the tool to each sales and marketing team member to fill out and then call the conversational case from there? Um, so the way that often happens, uh, so what I, so when I'm working with teams on this, oftentimes what we're doing is taking, um, walking leadership through usually sales and marketing together. I highly recommend doing that. Um, so that they take kind of a first crack at it, um, so that they kind of come up with the, what the core message or the core case is for a product or service or the organization in general. Um, and then roll it out to the team, but in a very specific way, not in a way of saying, this is a script that you have to follow. You have to say it exactly. Typically what works very well is once there's agreement at the kind of leadership level about what the core message is, then what I highly recommend doing, and um, I usually do this as a series of workshops, is that you are presenting that core message to your individual sales and marketing team members, and you're having them now use it for the 
adapt it for their own applications. So they're basically saying, okay, well, this is the kind of general message, but let's say I, as a salesperson, I need a version of it that speaks to somebody at this layer, layer of the organization. And then kind of in a workshopping type of environment, you see what they come up with and you kind of work with them to develop one that is still, again, consistent with the core message. So yay for the marketing and the branding folks, but customizable for the application and the person they're talking to and the outcome or this or the phase in the sales cycle what they're what what they're that they're looking at or working on. Um, that's how you get that customized ability as well. So being able to kind of start with that core message and adapt it um, in a kind of supervised way to give them some practice with it, that's usually what I find all that's needed to get people up and running in a way that they're like, okay, great. Now I know how to use this, I can generate this on my own. And with, with a fair amount of confidence coming from the marketing department, that this is still on, on the overall message, on brand, still consistent with the overall story that you're trying to get out there. So Christy, hopefully that answered your question. Um, I answer what may have been a kind of secondary question that sometimes comes up in that, why, uh, why marketing and sales together? <laughs> because you probably know, um, uh, I've, I've spent my entire career in that lovely gap between sales and marketing and being the translator for those two sides. Um, and the reason why it's useful to have both when you're coming up with that core story is from the marketing side, you're getting that kind of aspirational. Here's what we want people to know. Here's the main story. Here's the main proposition. Here's what we need to make sure that is continued to be represented about the brand. And then from the sales part, you've got the actual piece. All right. And here's how it actually has to work. And here's what we're actually hearing from our customers. Here's what they're, where they're actually going to push back on that. And to have that discussion happen at the moment of coming up with that core case means that at the moment it leaves and kind of goes out there, it is as resilient as it can be from both sides, from not only what it represents about your company, but also how it can be adapted and used by your salespeople and individual marketing team members. So um, hopefully that's useful. I think now's a great time for me to wrap up. If anything is um, uh comes up afterwards, please feel to reach out to me. You've got uh, a way to get connect with me uh, through um, through the handouts that you got and also um, that you got an email from me so you can be able to do that. Uh, I'm going to just get back my screen one more time and we're going to kind of get just wrap up. So we've got that. And someday with all the Zoom, I'm going to try to figure out how not to utter the phrase share my screen, but I'm just not sure that that's possible. All right. So remember where we started all today was that we wanted to figure out, you wanted to figure out, all right, how do we get our messages to stand out? Just particularly, you know, just, just so that they can survive out in the marketplace. And we know that no matter where your message starts, it is possible to do that, but it's also possible to make it stronger. Every pressure test you pass brings your message one step closer to being truly irresistible to your audience. If it's relevant, then you're offering them an irresistible outcome. You're giving them something that they want and likely won't unwant. And you're going to do that by identifying and making sure that your message already contains a question that they are answering right now, that they want to get answered right now. If your message is resilient, right, then your message is going to make an action impossible because you're putting what your audience wants and believes at odds with what they do. So they're going to want to know the answer to that. And you're also going to give them a, re a way to solve that through that moment of truth that resolves to a new approach or at least gives them the option for that. 
If it's remarkable, then your message identifies what makes your approach individual to you and your organization. And perhaps to that point about the competitors, even what makes you incomparable to your competitors, how you can change the conversation so much that what you own becomes the frame through which your prospective customers and clients look at the situation uh, and this industry as a whole. And then finally, if it's repeatable, it makes your message, explaining your message easy to your audience and to the people that they need to influence on behalf of you. So when you can summarize your whole message or key points in a particular sentence, then you've got everything that you need, not just for your message to stand out and stand the test of time, not just to survive, but thrive. So thank you all so much. This is where you can find me, uh, TamsinWebster.com. I'm at Tamadair at Twitter, on uh, Tamsin Webster everywhere else. Um, and it was really such a pleasure to, to see you all here today and to have you here. I'm happy to hang out for a couple minutes longer, um, answer questions as they come up. But thanks so much for being active members the whole time, everybody. So thank you, thank you, thank you. You've been listening to the Flip My Funnel podcast. To make sure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you have an iPhone, we'd love for you to open the Apple Podcasts app and leave a review. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.